I heard a message in a chapel service many years ago and a, uh, a line that the preacher used repeatedly and very effectively uh, that recurred in that, uh, that message, that sermon was, life is brief and death is certain. And he was preaching mostly to young people. This was in a high school uh, chapel. And I was glad that those young people could hear a message like that because that's not a message that young people hear very often. And it's certainly not a message that young people in particular very often consider or lay to heart. But as I think of the brevity of life, I think of um, life being brief in general, but uh, relatively, at least from our perspective, life uh, can be quite uh, widely varying in its duration. My grandmother died in, uh, during my final year of seminary, and when she died, she was 100 years old. And in contrast to that, I remember strolling through a cemetery somewhere in Europe, I don't remember where, uh, but I came across a headstone that caught my attention because it was the headstone of a little child who uh, had died on the date of its first birthday. So the, 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 the month and the day for death and birth were the same, just separated by one year. And all of us would certainly say that life was brief. But according to Scripture, even my grandmother in her hundred years had a very brief life. And in between those two kind of polar opposites, I think of my peers from high school. I recently saw a photograph from my high school jazz band and looked at the faces of my friends from when I knew them back in high school. And as I looked at those faces in that picture, I couldn't help uh, reflecting on the fact that three of them at least are no longer with us. My classmates, one died of suicide or some kind of drug overdose. Pretty sure another one died of AIDS. A third passed away, but I don't know the cause of his death. Life is brief. Death is certain. Worldwide, globally, approximately 7,000 people die every hour. So from the time of our call to worship tonight until the benediction, in that span of time, across the face of the earth, 7,000 people, give or take, will have passed into eternity. You are only a guest on this earth. That's the central theme of Psalm 39. The theme of prayer to God that He would make known to us the measure of our days. I think what I want you to take away from this psalm tonight is that all people must understand how brief life is and live accordingly. Understand how brief life is and live accordingly. There are three things that the psalmist uh, deals with in this psalm. And those will be our three points. First, we see the psalmist struggling in the presence of his foes. Secondly, recognizing the brevity of life. And then finally, hoping in God's redemption. So first of all, struggling in the presence of foes. That's what we see in verses 1 through 3. And this kind of serves as an introduction to the psalm in a way because again, I think the brevity of life 
and reflecting and meditating upon that is the central focus. But we start out in these first three verses where uh, the psalmist is, is struggling and he has this goal as it's stated in the opening words of the psalm after those introductory remarks. And he, you see the words in the ESV, I said, and that is a strong determination. He said he was going to guard his ways. He's going to be careful, in other words. And his concern was this. He did not want to sin with his tongue. Verse 1. He's going to mind his words. He expresses that in sort of a hyperbolic way in the following verses. He says he's going to guard his mouth with a muzzle. And what's the situation that's driving this deep concern he seems to have about guarding his words, monitoring and and restraining his lips? The concern was he had foes who were nearby. The presence of his foes. And that's a common human concern, isn't it? And it's a very common Christian concern to be concerned about what we say and how we say it, how it comes across, but not just our words, our actions as well. When we know the world is watching and we don't want to slip up when the sinful world is watching us. And so the psalmist takes uh, what is a very common approach among people when they don't want to do the wrong thing say the wrong thing. He basically says, uh, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. But we find in verses 2 and 3 that his effort to hold his tongue is unsuccessful. So at first he says, nothing at all. I was mute and silent. But the problem is, it didn't work. He says, "I, I held my peace to no avail. The pressure built up within him. Distress grew worse. His heart grew hot, it says. Fire burned. You know, there are other places in Scripture where we read of experiences like that. I thought particularly of the experience of Jeremiah. Now, the circumstances were somewhat different, uh, but Jeremiah uh, had the same thoughts. He says, I'm just not going to say anything. Now, Jeremiah wasn't a king like David was. Uh, he, the, the situation with David may have been uh, he was in, in court or you know, his, his royal court, but he knew there were uh, conniving people uh, in his midst. The situation with Jeremiah, of course, is he's a prophet and he'd been commissioned by God Almighty to declare God's word to, the, to a rebellious and stubborn people and they weren't listening Not only were they not listening, they were persecuting Jeremiah. They were mocking him, they were ridiculing him, and he was suffering even some physical abuse. And so in Jeremiah 20, he he just makes up his mind that, you know, I'm just not going to say anything anymore. But then in verse 9, we read, If I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. 
So Jeremiah had an experience similar to David's, at least in some respects. I say in some respects because of what happens when David can no longer hold his tongue. He says, I spoke with my tongue at the end of verse 3. Now, in your Bible, there is probably a colon after the word tongue at the end of verse 3. Most English versions have that. What's the relationship of verse 3 to verse 4? Uh, most translations have that colon there. And when you, when you choose to punctuate in that way, what you're suggesting then is that verse 4 is what he said when he finally couldn't hold his tongue any longer and, finally, and, and burst forth into speech. He couldn't hold it back any longer and he spoke and he said what was found in verse 4 and following. Well, there's an alternate way of interpreting this and I'm inclined to take this alternate approach and that is that when David did speak when he finally just couldn't hold it in any longer he spoke but he spoke in carnal anger and he sinned with his tongue the very thing he's trying not to do and I suppose that shouldn't surprise us if that's the case and if that's what truly uh, happened and the way things played out is no surprise that holding his tongue didn't work because he was trying to do something that the scriptures themselves teach us no man can do. In those familiar words of James chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. I remember reflecting on that first seven with, with friends uh, long ago, and someone made an observation about the training of animals. You know, I've seen lots of different kinds of trained animals. My family and I went to a medieval fair uh, once, and there was a guy who had trained ducks, and he herded ducks, and he used a whistle, and he'd blow the whistle, and the ducks would start to waddle all in this big flock on the ground, and he'd blow his whistle again, and they'd just stop. And he'd blow the whistle and they'd move. And he had, he had trained ducks to herd like sheep almost. And, you know, at the circus, the, the big attraction is the, the lion tamer because you've got the king of the beasts. And, and yet, man has been able to train the lion to tame him to some extent. But the, the observation that my friend made was uh, after having gone to SeaWorld, and reflected on the fact that human beings have learned how to train orcas. Mankind has tamed or trained killer whales so that they'll do tricks. It's amazing that we could train such animals. And the scriptures say, yeah, you can train those things. You can train a killer whale even if you want to, but you can't tame the tongue. And so... When David failed, when he sinned with his tongue, he cried out in the words of verse 4. He'd been struggling in the presence of his foes. This leads him to this reflection and this recognition 
of the brevity of life. And I say again, that's I think the central theme of the psalm, uh, our second point, recognizing the brevity of life. David prays to God, and it's to some extent a prayer of repentance, but he asks God to give him correct perspective on this life, this present life. He prays that God would enable him to know his end, first of all. In other words, uh, to know where this life is going. What this life leads to. And then secondly, he prayed that God would enable him to know the measure of his days. And in particular, that God would enable him to know how very brief, how very few his days really are. And so then as the verses go on, you have numerous different Images describing for us the brevity of life. So if one doesn't quite resonate with you, there there are others in his effort to convince us that our lives are short. He says this life is fleeting. That's what our ESV version says. If you're looking at the New American Standard, it uses the word transient. New King James uses the word frail. And they're all appropriate to describe our existence in this present age. And then he says, You have made my days a few hand breaths. There are certain measures that you can find in the, uh, in the Old Testament scriptures. One is a cubit, a cubit was approximately a foot and a half, 18 inches. But the basis of the measurement of the cubit was from the tip of one's finger here to the elbow. That's a cubit. A smaller measure would be a span. A span is when you stretch out the fingers of your hand, the distance from the thumb to the, to the little finger. That's a span. Cubit, span, but then if you join the fingers, that's a hand breadth. Obviously, of the three measures, it's the shortest one. And that's the measure that the psalmist uses to describe his life. It's just a few hand breaths, not a few spans or cubits. And he notes God's sovereignty over his days. You have made them. So it's not just that the brevity of his life is somehow out of God's control. God is the one who's ordained all of his days before there were any of them. It's the same confession that you see in Psalm 139 where it says to God, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So before you were ever born, God determined the date of your birth and the date of your death, along with the manner of it and everything that's going to exist and happen in your life in between those two times. So he says this life is fleeting. Our days are just as a few hand breaths. Our days are insignificant, furthermore. They're as nothing, the text says. And that's, of course, thinking from God's perspective, thinking from the perspective of history, from the perspective of eternity, which is the confession that we find in Psalm 90. A thousand years in your sight are like an evening when it's past. Or like a watch in the night. 
in verse 10. The years of our lives are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. See, even a life of 80 years is soon gone. It's considered fleeting. My mother turned 80 last week, two weeks ago, I guess. Yet her life was brief. And then the text describes our lives as a mere breath. That occurs twice in this psalm, verse 5, verse 11. And when the Scriptures repeat something like that, that's for emphasis, Anytime God says anything, we ought to sit up and pay attention, shouldn't we? But when he repeats it, when he says it twice, it's to get our attention. And both times uh, in this psalm, it so happens that the phrase, all mankind stands as a mere breath, is followed by that word selah. And I mentioned it last week because we were talking about it in the context of Habakkuk chapter 3, and his, his uh, or maybe it was two weeks ago, but... The point is, I, I, I mentioned that no one really knows what selah means. I mean, scholars try and they make their best guesses, but, and, and their guesses are reasonable, but we just don't know. But I think because of where it's used in this psalm, it might suggest that it means meditate, pause to reflect, consider this. And when, when, this, when this psalm says our lives are like a mere breath, here's a Hebrew word that has three distinct uh, and, and common meanings. It's the Hebrew word ruach. And that word, similar to its um, uh, equivalent in Greek, can mean any one of three things. It can mean spirit. It can mean wind. Or it can mean breath, as in our breath, our breathing. That's what ruach means. But ruach is not the word that's used here when the psalmist says all our lives, our our, our lifetime is a mere breath. A mankind stands as a mere breath. It's not ruach there. It's a different word. It's the word chevel, which means vapor. So it's like when you go outside on a really cold day and you breathe into the air and the moisture from your breath crystallizes in the air and it makes a little cloud. And then that little cloud goes away in almost no time at all. It barely lasts a second. And the psalm is saying, we're like that. That's how we are. Hevel, vapor. It's the same word that in Ecclesiastes is used over and over again to to be translated as vanity. And the scriptures say, this psalm says twice, all mankind is a mere breath. Not just some people, all of us. This is interesting, but uh, the Hebrew word for mankind when it says all mankind is a mere breath, the Hebrew word is Adam, which is where we get the name Adam. It can be a personal name, a personal, pronoun, a personal noun, Adam, our, our first father. 
or it can be used generally, as it very frequently is, to mean the human race, all mankind, Adam. And then the word for Hevel is also the word for Adam's son, Abel. So, kind of woodenly and literally, the text says, all Adam is Abel. All mankind is a vapor. That's what James tells us. James, who's also a descendant of David, many centuries later, pastor of the church in Jerusalem, half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, he wrote, what is your life? What is it? You are a mist, a vapor, that appears for a little time and then vanishes, just like your breath on a cold winter day. That's how we are. And we all go about, the psalm says, we all go about as a shadow, or some translate it phantom, like we have no substance. There's no real lasting substance there. And so before we move to our final point, let me make a, a brief point of application, and it comes out of the end of verse 6. Surely man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So listen, if your goal in life is simply to get things, if your goal in life is simply to amass wealth, all of your effort is worthless. This psalm calls us to look beyond this life. The gospel calls us to store up treasure in heaven, not here on earth. We don't really have any right to occupy this earth. We remain only as long as God permits. We live at His pleasure. Life is brief and death is certain. Recognize the brevity of life. But then finally, our third point, hoping in God's redemption. That's what we see the psalmist doing as he reaches the end of this psalm. He's turning to God. He's now turning to God in prayer. So he says in verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Here we find the turning point in the psalmist's thinking. He's been reflecting on the brevity of life. He's broken over his sin. But in the view of the brevity of life, he doesn't despair. But he turns to God. His confidence and his hope are in the Lord his God. My hope is in you, he says in verse 7. And what is he hoping for from God? As he looks to God in hope, what is it he's seeking as he directs his attention to the Almighty? He's looking and he's hoping in God, first of all, for the forgiveness of sins. He says, deliver me from my transgressions, the beginning of verse 8, from all of them. So his hope is for forgiveness. His hope is also for vindication, to escape the scorn of the fool. Do not make me the scorn of the fool, he says. And of course, he's ultimately seeking mercy from God. We see in verses 9 and 10. And once again, he's, he's got his mouth closed. Verse 9, he says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth. Uh, but this is a different kind of silence. He's being silent for a different reason now. It's not just that he's concerned about what people might hear him say and how they might use it against him. That's not why he's 
holding his tongue now. Now he's silent in humble submission to God's discipline. And he acknowledges that it is God who's disciplining him. And then he reflects again. Reflects on the fact that everything about this present life is temporary. Everything about it. Things are temporary. And the longer we live, the more we realize the truth of that. We see how time consumes all our stuff. It consumes what's dear to us. In the the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was exhorting us to store up treasure in heaven, he says, if you store up treasure on earth, what's going to happen? Thieves are going to break in and steal. Moth and rust corrupt. And we could go on. Things break. Things wear out. Things get lost. Things are temporary. But not only are things temporary, we are temporary. In this present earthly sense, that is. And so again, that's why the text uses the expression, we're a mere breath. Every last one of us. Every single one. Young or old. And I want you younger people especially to listen to me now. Because that same span of, of age that I mentioned at the beginning, my grandmother who died at the age of 100, and the little one-year-old lying in the grave, in that cemetery somewhere in Europe. We have quite a span of ages in our congregation right here at First Scots, don't we? We've got Pierre McGowan, who's 95. And then we've got Landry Marie Timms, who's barely a week old. And we've got everything in between, the whole spectrum. We've got high sc- upcoming high school graduates excited about completing their high school education and going to college or getting a job or moving on to whatever the Lord has next. But we're all temporary, and we all need to know that. We all need to take that to heart. The psalmist does, and I love the way he expresses it in verse 12. He's hoping in God, but he's describing his hope in God in terms of being a guest. I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. We're just guests here, that's all. And his hope as a guest on this earth is that God would hear and answer his prayers, that God would consider his tears, and that God would act in his behalf. And the confession here of the psalmist, each one of us should take on our own lips keeping our own hearts. I am a guest. I am temporary. I am a sojourner. I don't get to stay. And he says the same is true of all my fathers. I am a guest like all my fathers. William Branch Walton, born in 1860, saw the hardships of the Civil War and the aftermath of it. 
living in Virginia, died in 1936. 76 years old, I guess that is. He was my great-grandfather. Samuel Kent Walton Sr. passed away on the 23rd of August, 1994. I was on TDY in Switzerland, and my commander came and said they got a Red Cross message. Uh, He said, "Your, your grandfather died. He was 81. If God spares my father for another four months, he'll turn 85 this year. But we're all visitors, we're all guests. My parents had a guest book. As my sister and I were growing up, we had a guest book, we kept it by the door, and they would try to remember. You know, it's hard sometimes, you forget. Hillary and I inherited that problem from them. We had a guest book, but we always forget to ask people to sign it when they come over. But the point is, you know, people would visit us, they'd come over for dinner, or maybe they'd even stay uh, uh, for a while. And we'd have them sign so we could keep a record of people who had visited us as guests. I never signed that guest book because I wasn't a guest. I lived there. That was my home. The point is that here in this present life, you are a guest. This is not your home. This present world is not your home. So sign the guest book. Get used to the fact that this is not your final stop. You don't get to stay. Whether a few days or a few years or many years, this life is going to end. And the Christian hope looks beyond this life. The Christian hope looks to the world to come, the life of the world to come. Just a few words of application as we close. In this life, neither prosperity nor suffering endure. And I hope that's an encouragement to you, especially Christians who are enduring suffering in this life. We prayed for many of you earlier this evening. This life is temporary, which means your sufferings and your afflictions are temporary. They won't last forever. And we're told in Scripture, uh, the words of the Apostle, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us and in us. Elsewhere it speaks of this this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He describes it as light and he describes it as momentary and I know sometimes your sufferings don't seem light at all and they seem like they go on and on. They don't seem temporary or momentary whatsoever but try to get that eternal perspective and then you'll see that whatever you're suffering in this life is a little bit like you know when you when you have to take a child in to get a vaccination to get a shot you know when the shot stings for a second the child might be afraid to get the shot because they think it's going to hurt and maybe it will hurt a little but it lasts for about that long And then if, for instance, it's the polio vaccine, then that child is protected for the rest of his or her life from polio. But at the cost of a brief pain, a brief pinprick. Right? Think of Louis Zamperini. He was a prisoner of war, a 
in World War II, but he's also an Olympic athlete, Olympic medalist. And reportedly, as he was getting ready to run a race, a race on which he was expected to do well and was hoping to win the gold medal, a colleague of his said to Louis Zamperini, he says, um, a moment of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. In other words, gut it out for these laps, however many you have to race, and if you win, you're going to be an Olympian, you'll be an Olympic champion the rest of your life. And I thought, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a glorious sentiment. You know, a moment of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. But expand that to something that's more enduring. It's, in fact, it's eternal and it's more important, infinitely more important. Even a whole lifetime of suffering is worth an eternity of glory. And that's what we're called to. Here's another word of application, and this is for those who aren't suffering right now. Those who are doing pretty well. Those who are pretty comfortable. No problems right now. Be aware and beware. In a state of prosperity, in a state of success, in a state of strength, people naturally become proud. Their pride gets the better of them. And they forget how frail and transient they really are. They forget about the coming judgment. Don't be lulled into complacency. If God is blessing you with a time of ease and blessing and pleasantness, don't forget that the judgment day is coming. Understand how brief this present life is and live accordingly. But then finally, I want to make an application to anyone here or anyone who hears this message who is an unbeliever. If you are apart from Jesus Christ, hear this and remember, lay this to heart, your life is short. You have only a brief time. You have only a very limited opportunity to take your eyes off of the things of this world and to turn to Christ. Life is brief. Death is certain. And Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed for each person to die once. And after this comes judgment. While you still have time, flee from the wrath to come. Repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you don't, you will not stand in the judgment. Meaning, you won't survive the judgment. It's not that God is going to condemn you. It's that you're condemned already. You're just waiting for the sentence to be executed. And again, I want to speak to the young people. Don't put off this decision until later. Don't think, well, you know, when I get out and start living my life, then I'll get serious about Christ, maybe. You're living your life now. And the clock is ticking. The days are ticking by. And not a single one of us knows whether our name might come up on God's sovereign manifest for the 7,000 or so people that are going to die the next hour. You don't know. You might be a little child. And you might be putting off that decision to place your faith in Jesus Christ and confess your faith in Him. You don't know how long you have. And that's what this psalm is all about. Even if we have a long time, 
in human terms. Life is brief, death is certain. Understand how brief life is and live according to, accordingly. Look to Christ and live. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear these words. We need to receive this sobering reminder over and over. We pray, O God, that you help us to consider the brevity of this life and the eternity that lies ahead. And Lord, we pray that you will grant each one of us, everyone, man, woman, and child, that we might glorify and enjoy you forever in your eternal kingdom of glory. Receive us into the heavenly realms through Christ Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray.